I don't know about you, but my favorite day of the week is Sunday. That would have been a good time for you to have said amen right there. <laughs> so let me try that again. My favorite day of the week is Sunday. Amen. And these 30 minutes that we spend together during the sermon time are my favorite 30 minutes of the week. You should certainly say amen on that too. I have to, no, I have to prompt that. It's not sincere coming from you, but I've got to prompt it anyway. If I had my way, Every Sunday that I preach, I would use these 30 minutes to encourage you, to lift you up. Because, you know, that's what I think we need more than anything. Life can be hard, and we go through things, and we just need encouragement to keep on keeping on, to keep on trusting God. And there's nothing that builds us up quite like somebody who is in, who's an encourager. I know this past week... Someone encouraged me. We were down at MD Anderson, and I was getting on an elevator at one point. I was by myself at this time, and there was this young man pushing what I assumed to be his mother in a wheelchair. So they got on the elevator, and then there was this other lady that was on, and they got on the elevator in front of me. And I said to the three of them, I said, do you mind if I, if I ride with y'all? And they said, no, there's plenty of room, so come on. And I got in there, and the doors closed, and and I just sensed that all three of these people were Christians. I could just feel it in their the presence, their in their countenance, and especially the lady standing to my right. And so I said something that I guess is a little unusual to say in an elevator to three strangers, but I just felt it in my heart. I said, uh, I said, it's a real honor for me to ride this elevator with the three of you today. And that one lady looked over at me and she said, I sense God in your voice. And it made me feel so good. And I just smiled and she said, are you a preacher? <laughs> and I smiled bigger and I said, I am a preacher. And she kind of did a little shiver and she said, I can smell a preacher a mile away. <laughs> and I didn't know if I should be encouraged or discouraged when she said that. But the doors opened and I walked out and I chose to be encouraged because I think I knew what she meant by that. But you know, I was reminded that encouragement is so very important. And I really think most sermons, because the Bible is full of encouraging verses and encouraging truths, keep on keeping on, keep trusting God, keep moving forward, don't give up. A better day is coming. God's going to bring good out of whatever you're facing. So encouragement is so very important. And like I say, if I had my way, every sermon I preach would be on encouragement. But the fact is, the same Bible that gives all these great verses on encouragement also has quite a bit to say about the judgment of God. Now, as a preacher, I find no joy in preaching a sermon on the judgment of God. Sometime I'll hear a preacher preaching, for example, about hell. And the preacher gets so excited preaching about hell that you almost get the impression he's glad people are going to go there one day. And I don't feel that way about hell. We have to preach on it because it's in the Bible, but it brings me no joy to think about hell and the fact that one day many people will be there. And I feel the same way about the judgment of God. I, I wish that every sermon could be uplifting and encouraging. But the fact is we have to preach the whole counsel of God. And there are places in the Bible where we read quite a bit about the judgment of God. Now, I want to read you a quote that I came across this week from a, from a pastor who's in heaven now. His name is W.A. Criswell. And if you're a student of, of church life, you've heard that name. For over 50 years, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. And my generation coming up, and even my dad's generation when they were coming up, we all looked to Dr. Criswell as like the pastor's pastor. He's just like the ultimate pastor. And I came across this quote, and I just, it's a little bit long, but I want to read it to you today because I think it will help lay the foundation for this sermon. 
He said, whenever there's a true prophet of God, he will preach judgment. These modern so-called ministers of God speak all things nice. There's not any hell, and there's not any devil, and there's not any judgment of God. In our enlightened and sophisticated day, we stand up and we speak of the love of Jesus, and we speak of peace, and we speak of all things pretty and beautiful. But remember, the same book that tells us about the good tells us about the bad. The same book of Revelation that speaks to us about heaven speaks about hell. The Bible that presents the Lord Jesus as the Savior, it is the same Bible that presents to us the devil as our enemy and adversary of damnation and destruction. The two go together. If there is not anything to be saved from, we do not need a Savior. And so as a preacher... It is my responsibility not only to preach encouraging sermons, although I wish I could do every one like that, but it is to preach the whole counsel of God. And so when the Bible talks about judgment, we have to preach judgment. We have to preach everything that is in the Bible. And so with that being said, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation in chapter number 6. Now, we're studying through this book. If you're visiting with us today... For the last several weeks, we have been studying through the, in the book of Revelation. We've studied chapter 1, where John had this amazing vision of Jesus. We've studied in chapters 4 and 5, where John was taken to heaven, and he got to see all the wonderful things that are now happening in heaven. And for the last four weeks, we've been thinking about, about heaven and all the beauty and all the wonder and everything great that is going on in heaven. But today, we come to chapter 6. And beginning with chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 19, we're studying about a period of judgment. It's known as the Great Tribulation. Now, the Bible teaches that after the church is raptured up into heaven, after all of us as Christians are taken to be with God in heaven, that complete horror will come upon this earth. And that horror is the judgment of God. We learn from a passage of prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that this period of, of tribulation will last for seven years. The Antichrist, at the beginning of that period, will make a peace treaty with Israel and with all the other nations. He will allow the Jewish people to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. They've not had a temple since the year 70 AD when the Romans burned it down. And, God, and the Antichrist is going to broker this peace treaty. In the middle of the seven-year period, he's going he's to break the peace treaty the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple. He will demand to be worshipped by all the people. It's described in the Gospels as the abomination of desolation. He will begin to persecute and try to kill as many Jewish people as he can. It's going to be seven horrible years. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to, several weeks, not seven weeks, actually for the next 13 weeks, we're going to be studying chapter by chapter about this seven-year period of great tribulation. And I hope and pray that this sermon series is as close as any of you ever get to the actual tribulation because it's going to be very, very bad. And we read about it beginning in chapter number 6. Now, before we get into the reading of the Scripture today, 
Maybe you're asking this question, well, what is the purpose of this seven-year period, this great tribulation? Well, I've written down two things. You might want to jot this down if you're a note taker. Number one, the first purpose of the tribulation, it is God's judgment on those who have rejected Jesus Christ and whose sins have not been forgiven. You see, God judges sin. I think sometimes we have the idea, as as I read in the quote, we so stress the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy and kindness of God, the patience of God, that we sometimes forget the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And God is too just and too righteous to overlook sin. I think sometimes we just think that God's going to turn his head on sin. No, every sin must be punished. Now, Your sins and my sins will either be punished by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, or if a person rejects Jesus and refuses Jesus, that means that person's sins are on himself or on herself, and so those sins must be punished. Think of it this way. If God were ever going to overlook sin... If God were ever going to be easy on sin, it would have been when Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins. But God wasn't easy on Jesus. Jesus had to die and be punished for sins. And so every sin in the world is either on Jesus or it's on the person who sinned and who has rejected Jesus. So the first purpose of the tribulation, it is God's judgment on those whose sins have not been forgiven. Number two, the second purpose of the tribulation, it is God's mercy giving unsaved people a a second chance and really a final chance to repent and get saved. So here again we see God's judgment, but we also see God's mercy. And as we'll see next Sunday morning, many will be saved during the tribulation period. Now, What is the purpose of our studying the Great Tribulation? Why would I spend, why would we spend the next 13 weeks, beginning in chapter 6 through chapter 19? We'll only probably get through chapter 18 before we pause for the Christmas break. But why would we spend that much time studying the book or studying the Great Tribulation? Number one reason, it is a warning to the unsaved. What we're going to be looking at today and for the next several weeks It is a warning to those who will be in the services or who will be listening who have not made peace with God, who have never received Jesus Christ. It is a warning to the unsaved. And number two, it is a wake-up call to those of us who are saved to do everything we can to bring our family members and friends to Jesus Christ before it is too late. So it's a warning, and it is also a wake-up call. Now, we're in chapter 6, but go back to chapter 5. I want us just to review a little bit what we saw last week. This will get us ready. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 5. John is in heaven, and he's seeing this vision. And he said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne 
and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so as we saw last week, the only person in heaven who was worthy to take this scroll from the Father's hand was Jesus Christ himself. Now with that background, go to chapter 6 and look in verse number 1. John said, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, Come up here. And so Jesus now begins to open this scroll. He begins, one, there are seven seals on the scroll, and so one seal at a time, Jesus begins to loose this scroll. And as the scroll is opened, we discover about the great tribulation. We learn phase by phase about what will one day happen as far as judgment on this earth. And it's interesting, the first four seals talk to us about the about four horse riders or what some have called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these are people who are beginning to execute God's judgment on the earth. And so let's just spend most of our time today thinking about who these four horsemen are and what the judgment they represent is. The first horseman we read about in verse number two. John said, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the question is, who is the rider of this horse? Well, you might be tempted to say, this is Jesus, and he's going out to execute God's judgment on the earth. But in fact, it is not Jesus. Instead, it is the Antichrist who always tries to look like Jesus. I read last week, in my own Bible reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it describes the devil as an angel of light. And the devil always tries to make himself look like God. And so here we find the Antichrist riding on a white horse. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll find Jesus riding on a white horse. Here we find the Antichrist with a crown on his head. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll find Jesus with many crowns on his head. So the Antichrist is trying to look like Jesus. But it's not Jesus. It is the Antichrist. How do you know that? How do we know that? Well, first of all, this crown that he is wearing is called a Stephanos. It is a victor's crown. In other words, the Antichrist during the tribulation will have a, a period of time where it appears as though he has total victory over the whole earth. But in Revelation 19, we read about Jesus' crown. It is a royal diadem. It is a kingly crown. And only the Son of God could wear that crown. Also, on this uh, rider of the white horse in Revelation 6, we find that he is promising something he cannot deliver. He's promising peace. And as I mentioned a moment ago, at the beginning of the tribulation, he will make a peace treaty with the world. And he will promise everybody, if you'll follow me, I'll give you peace. But he is unable to give the peace that he promises. Three and a half years into it, it it'll, he'll break that treaty. Notice he has a bow, but there are no arrows. And so he's making a peace treaty 
but he's making a treaty that he cannot keep. And so this is the Antichrist. This is Satan's Superman. Another way we know that this is the Antichrist is not just because of the description in verse 2, but these next three riders on their horses would indicate to us that they are following the Antichrist and... It goes from bad to worse. So let's look at the second horseman. And beginning in verse 3 we read, When Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So now the peace treaty is broken. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And so the second horseman is war. And we read here that war will break out on the earth. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Man against man. The sword that he is describing that this rider is wearing is a sword that you would use in hand-to-hand combat. And so what we read here is that a war is going to come to this earth. Just like Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24, there will be wars, and here it is. Now, we know that the world we live in today is full of war. And we know that terrible things are happening all over the world. People are killing each other. We see this on the news almost daily. Well, as bad as it is now, it will be much worse during the tribulation because during the tribulation, there will be no Christians on the earth, at least not at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, many will be saved, but when the tribulation begins, all the Christians will be in heaven. Now, how did Jesus describe Christians in the Sermon on the Mount? He said that we are the salt and we are the light. Salt of the earth, light of the world. What does salt do? Salt preserves. What does light do? Light brightens. And so if you take the salt and the light out of the world, there's no preservation and there's no light. And people are going to be killing one another like uh, like unto which the world has never seen. Let's move on and see the third horseman. And he, the, the rider on this horse, is named Famine because famine often follows war. In verse 5, when Jesus opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of wheat. Of barley uh, for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So, what is what is happening here? We're reading about famine on the earth. Let's talk about this. What's this mean? A quart of wheat and barley and denarius. What is all this? Well, in Bible times, a denarius was a day's wages for a common worker. You go out and work for a day, you get a denarius. That's that's the equivalent of a day's wages. Well, normally a denarius would buy. 10 quarts of wheat and 30 quarts of barley. Now think about that. In, b- before the tribulation, in New Testament times, a denarius would have bought 10 quarts of wheat, 30 quarts of barley. But we read here that during the tribulation, during this famine, a denarius will only buy one quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. In other words, it will buy one-tenth of what it normally would have bought, one-tenth the amount of food. Now, one quart of wheat was the daily ration for a soldier. So think about this. It says that with a denarius, you will be able to buy one quart of wheat. That's what a soldier would take every day to live. And so during the tribulation, a person will go out to work all day long, 
and he'll be paid. He'll get a denarius. But where he used to could have bought 10 quarts of wheat, he can only buy one quart. In other words, he can only feed himself. He'll work all day, and with the money he makes, he will be able to feed himself for that day. No money for his wife, no money, no food for his kids. So maybe he'll split it up, maybe he'll eat it all, who knows. But the point is, it will be a terrible, terrible famine on the earth. And so there'll be great scarcity of food. And then it says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. It seems to mean here, the oil and wine would be a reference to, to wealthy people, to those who are living in luxury. And so it seems they'll, at least at this point, have plenty of oil and plenty of wine. So the rich will still be rich, but most people are not going to be rich, and even those who do will not be able to buy as much as they could have before, but it will be a terrible, terrible famine that will come upon the earth, and that's what the third rider represents. Now, think about what we've said so far. The first rider is the Antichrist on a white horse. The second rider is, is uh, war on a red horse, bloody red war. The third rider is on this black horse, and he represents famine. And the fourth rider, we read about in, cha- in verse number 7, is death. And it says, when Jesus opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. And so death is the fourth rider, and he is on a pale horse, the color of death and human decomposition and decay. And so here's death, and following after death is Hades. We've talked about Hades before. Hades is the place where non Christians go immediately when they die. So we could say it this way. Death will take the body and Hades will take the soul. And there will not only be death, but there will be widespread death. And it says people will be killed by the sword, with hunger, uh, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So the animals themselves will be uh, even more savaging and ravaging than they are today. And it says a fourth of the earth is going to be killed. Now, I did a little math on this to try to put it in perspective. Let's just say that there are 8 billion people on the earth today. That's a close number, 8 billion. Let's just say that 2 billion of those are Christians. Approximation. So at the rapture, 2 billion go to heaven. And so that leaves 6 billion on the earth. Now, of that six billion, when the fourth rider goes out, death and Hades, a quarter of six billion, is going, they're going to be killed. That is one and a half billion people that will be killed at this point in the tribulation. It is unthinkable about what is going to happen. Some will die because of hunger. Some will die because of the sword. Some will die through the death of wild animals or beasts. There'll be different methods of death. But this fourth rider on the horseman represents the fact that there will be widespread death. Now, as I was thinking about this yesterday, you still listening, by the way? Say amen. Amen. You think about the Antichrist and the people who are following the Antichrist today. Well, if you choose to follow the Antichrist, or maybe I could just say it this way, if you're not following Jesus, you're in fact following the Antichrist. Because if you're not pro-Christ, you would have to be, by definition, Antichrist. 
And we read in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 that the spirit of Antichrist is already prevalent in the world. And there are many small Antichrist out there. There's a sense in which every unbeliever is Antichrist. They're against Christ. And so if a person has not chosen for Christ, they have chosen against Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, if you're not with me, you're against me. So if you're not with Jesus, in essence, you're following the Antichrist. And what can you expect in your life? Well, you can expect exactly what we've seen here today. First of all, you can expect conflict in your life. You can expect unmet needs in your life. And you can ultimately expect death. See, that's where the Antichrist, that's where the devil always leads us. Conflict and then unmet needs and ultimately death. But if you follow Christ, you can expect the opposite of that. What's the opposite of war? Peace. What's the opposite of unmet needs? Provision. What's the opposite of death? Life. And so if you choose Jesus, you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow the the one who's on a white horse with a diadem on his head. King of kings and Lord of lords. What can you expect? You can expect a life not problem-free, but you can expect a life full of peace, full of provision, and ultimately full of life everlasting and life eternal. But not the Antichrist. Those who choose against Christ will go from bad to worse. There'll be war, there'll be famine, and ultimately there will be death, there will be Hades, and finally there will be eternity in the lake of fire in a place called hell itself. Now, let's look beginning in verse 9 at what is called the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. And what I want to do with this I want to save the fifth seal till next Sunday. And I want to combine the cry of the martyrs with chapter 7. And you might want to read this week chapter 7 in preparation for next week's sermon. But next Sunday morning, I want to preach a sermon entitled, A Great Revival and the Beheading of Many Christians. Because that's what's going to happen during the tribulation. There will be many saved, but many of those who are saved will be beheaded. They will be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to save that fifth seal till next week and deal with it in that context. So now let's look at the sixth seal in verse number 12. John said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree, fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, like a piece of parchment rolled up. The sky is going to do that one day. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. You think of all the beautiful mountains in the world, the Smoky Mountains where I grew up, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and all the beautiful mountains, and all the beautiful islands that you've probably traveled and seen some of these islands. Well, it says there's coming a day, every mountain, every island will be moved out of its place because of this massive earthquake. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide, from, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so evidently, during this part of the tribulation, when war is happening, famine is happening, death is happening, 
earthquake is happening. The sun and the moon are losing their brightness. Stars are falling out of the sky. And the unsaved people on the earth are watching all this happening. In the midst of that, they get a glimpse of heaven. And when they see heaven, they see God. They see the throne of God. They see the Lamb. They see Jesus Christ, whom they have rejected. And they become aware that this is not just a normal earthquake, or this is not just something, you know, a normal war or something like that. They become aware that they are experiencing the judgment of God. And yet an interesting thing happens. Instead of them dropping to their knees, asking God for mercy and forgiveness, asking God to save them, which He gladly would have done, these people don't do that. What do they do? They cry out uh, to the rocks and, uh, and to the mountains. But look, it says again in verse 6, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of God. So in, instead of calling out to the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, for salvation, they pray to the rocks. They pray to nature. And they ask the rocks to fall on them. And they ask the mountains to cover them up so they will be spared from any further wrath that is to come upon the earth. It's a sad thing when they could have called on Jesus and been saved. And as we'll see next week, many will do that. But these did not. Not at this point. They called out to the rocks and they asked the rocks to cover them up from the wrath of God. Now, as we think about this beginning part of the tribulation and we think about the war, the famine, the death, the destruction, the cosmic disturbances that will come upon this earth early on in the tribulation, I think it is, why it is good for us today, and we would be wise today, to pause and to think about this and to have a moment of contemplation, reflection, and examination. And I think today is a good time for us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, all of us should ask ourselves, do I know for sure that I'm saved? Do I know for sure that I'm saved? That's one of the reasons God has put all this about future judgment in the Bible to get our attention so that we would examine our own heart. I read yesterday, I'm finishing up 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says that we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And I'm asking you today to do that. Do you know for sure, beyond the shadow of any doubt, that you're saved? Because if you don't know that, if you're not sure, God would have you to get sure today. God would have you to get that settled today because God doesn't want you to experience this. That's why God is sending out a warning. It's as though God is standing in front of everyone here today who is unsaved or not sure that they're saved, and God is, is waving His arms, and God is saying, it, it, very much like a sign you would see on a road where there's a road out. The road is out. Stop. Turn around. Go the other way. If you continue on this road that you are on, it will not end well. If you are still living when the rapture takes place, you'll miss the rapture. You'll be left behind. You'll be in the tribulation, and you will experience the things that we've talked about this morning. And so God today, through His Word, by His Spirit, and even through me, is saying to everyone here today who's unsaved, stop. You're going in the wrong direction. And today you need to be saved. Today you can be saved. And you can be saved from all this. What did Dr. Criswell say in that quote I read earlier? He said, if there's nothing to be saved from, then we don't need a Savior. 
But there is something to be saved from. There's the tribulation. There's Hades. There's hell. There's eternal separation from God. There's something to be saved from. And so we need to be saved. And then I would ask those of us who are saved today, are we spending whatever time we have remaining on earth, investing it in the souls of other people? Let's just play like that I have 30 more years on the earth. I hope I have longer. I may not have that long. But let's just play like I have 30 more years. Here's the question. Will I spend my remaining 30 years buying what I want, going where I want, doing what I want, building up my own little life? Will I spend my remaining 30 years doing whatever it is that makes me happy? Or will I spend my remaining 30 years saying, you know what? The main thing is not what makes me happy. The main thing is what makes God happy. And the main thing is doing everything I can to help people who've never been saved to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that they can miss the tribulation and everything that will follow that. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. And I'm just asking you today, do you know for sure that you're saved? Remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, he who is not with me is against me. And so here's what it means. It means that everybody in this room and everybody listening to this message is either pro-Christ or anti-Christ. And if you've never been saved, you've never probably thought of yourself as anti-Christ. But by the fact that you're not pro-Christ, that means you are anti-Christ. And so what I'm asking you to do today is in a moment, not yet, in a moment, when we have our invitation, I'm asking you today in just a moment to give your heart to Jesus Christ and to receive Him as Lord and Savior and to be saved from the wrath and the judgment of God that will one day come upon this earth. As I was thinking about this last night, and I was thinking about all the people that would be here at this service and then the one to follow, and I know that most people here are already saved, but I also know that there are some here who are not, or they're not sure. I was thinking about you last night. And I thought, you know, if it were possible, and it's not possible, but if it were possible, I would give your heart to Jesus for you if I could. In other words, if I could be saved for you, I would be saved for you. If somehow this morning I could come and inhabit your body and reside in your soul, when we stand up to sing this next song, I would lead you out of the place where you're sitting and I would lead you down this aisle and I would, I would, I would get saved for you. I would, but I can't, I can't get saved for you. Only you can do that. And I'm saying today, if you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart, I plead with you today for God's sake, but primarily for your sake to give your heart to Jesus and get that settled today. And be spared from all the judgment that will one day come upon this earth. Amen. And so, Father, today, I don't know how many people in this service need to make a decision. But I believe there are several who do. And I pray, God, today that they would just, for these next three or four minutes, concern themselves with nothing but the condition of their soul. With your head bowed and eyes closed today, that place where you're sitting can become your altar.
it can become the place where Jesus Christ comes to live in your heart forever, change your life, keep you out of all this judgment that will be on this earth one day. Would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Lord, I receive you by faith. Oh, God, thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that I'm saved from something, from the tribulation, from Hades, from hell, from eternal separation from you. And God, during this next song, help me to be pro-Christ all the way. God, help me not to be ashamed of you, but help me to come forward and make my decision public. You may be sitting by someone who just prayed that prayer, and you know they just prayed that prayer. You heard them pray it. Maybe today you could just pat them on the leg or take them by the hand and say, hey, today, if you want to go forward, I'll go with you. You don't have to go alone. We can go together. We'll go God's way today. I'm praying that several will come forward. Others, you were saved before today's service, but you've never confessed Christ openly. You've never let it be known that you're pro-Christ. You should do that today. Others, you've already done that, but you feel God leading you to join our church. Maybe you've worshipped here many times before. Maybe this is your very first service, but you feel God leading you to join this church. So we're going to ask you to come today. Others here today who are already saved and already a member of our church, maybe somebody's on your heart, maybe a spouse, a neighbor, a child, a friend, a co-worker. Somebody's on your heart who's unsaved. Maybe during this next song, we see this happen a lot on Sunday night, but maybe this morning you would like to just come and kneel at this altar on that person's behalf and pray for their salvation and pray that this week God might give you an opportunity to at least invite them to come to church next week so they could hear the warnings. And so they could make their own decision. Father, I pray there'll be a freedom now during this next song. Help us not to rush it. And help us not just to to go through the motions. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen and amen.